You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual I haven't read Jordan B. Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. And full disclosure, I'm not going to read Jordan B. Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. I've never really been into books full of rules. It's one of the reasons I walked away from the Catholic Church in my teens. Also never been into the kind of people who write books of rules or insist that their book full of rules has all the answers. I got through the 1990s without reading The Rules, Time-Tested Secrets for Capturing the Heart of Mr. Right, which was a phenomenon then. And I'm pretty sure I can get through the teens or whatever we're calling this decade without reading 12 Rules for Life. And pretty much for the same reason I didn't watch Two Girls, One Cup. Everything you need to know about some shit shows you can learn reading about them. You don't need to buy a ticket and show up for the shit show itself. So anyway, I was reading about Jordan B. Peterson, a.k.a. the most influential public intellectual in the Western world right now, reading about him this weekend in the New York Times. Peterson, if you haven't been paying attention, and I wasn't until very recently, is a psychology professor at the University of Toronto who rose to prominence when he refused to use or protested being compelled to use trans and gender nonconforming students' preferred pronouns. Peterson is a big proponent of patriarchy, male dominance also, but that's the same thing, isn't it? And hierarchies, a.k.a. male dominance, patriarchy, same things, because lobsters or something. And he rails against the left because of the left's supposed devotion to equality of outcomes. All right, first, it's equality of opportunities the left supports, not equality of outcomes. But you only have to look at the current inequality of outcomes to know that we haven't achieved equality of opportunity. So... Outcomes is relevant when you talk about equality of opportunity. Anyway, zooming out even further, change is scary, and it makes people anxious. And nostalgia for the 1950s, which Peterson endorses and promotes, nostalgia for simpler, more harmonious times that were neither simple nor harmonious for the people living in them then, it really is the big bottle of Xanax. Might make you feel a little less anxious, but nostalgia, like Xanax, is also going to make you stupid, suggestible, and easily misled. So anyway, I was reading about the Jordan B. Peterson shit show in the New York Times this weekend, a terrific piece by Nellie Bowles, look it up, and I wanted to share this bit. Violent attacks are what happens when men do not have partners, Mr. Peterson says, and society needs to work to make sure those men are married. He was angry at God because women were rejecting him, Mr. Peterson says of the Toronto incel killer. The cure for that is enforced monogamy. That's actually why monogamy emerges. If the cure for that, if the cure for men who kill women is women, landing one or being assigned one, then how do you explain away the results of a Centers for Disease Control study that found that 55% of women who were murdered between 2003 and 2014 were killed by current or former romantic partners, compared to just 16% of female homicides that were committed by strangers? So Peterson would have us believe that men kill because they don't have partners, at least straight men do. And the solution to that, the fix for that, is to assign these men partners and enforce monogamy. And then you would have to enforce it because you would be assigning these men, women, who didn't partner up with these men willingly, which is some serious handmaid's tale shit. 
But again, women are likelier to be killed by their male partners than by anyone else in their lives. So it would seem that having a partner isn't, quote unquote, the cure that Peterson would have us believe it is. We've seen three incel attacks in North America since 2009. George Sodini, Elliot Roger, Alec Menasayan. And between the three incels who attacked, they killed just 21 people. At least three women are killed by their male partners just in the United States every day. Three or more, which means husbands and boyfriends, men with partners, end the lives of more women in a week than incels have ended in the last nine years. Half the men fail, Peterson told the New York Times, and no one cares about the men who fail. You know what? I care about the men who fail, and I spend a lot of time talking to men who are currently failing at relationships, at sex, at love, and I feel their pain. I empathize. But telling them that the fix, the solution for their pain is to return to the 1950s or to enslave women, neither of which is going to happen, that's not helpful. That's not how you show these men that you care about them. Because that is not going to happen. Again, it's not going to happen. Helping those men who have succumbed to toxic masculinity, to this idea that they are entitled to women's bodies, attentions, and that is, thank God, hashtag not all men, encouraging those men to have realistic expectations and helping those men who do want to mate to figure out what they're doing wrong, that's helpful. That's how you demonstrate to these men that you care about them and their plight. It does involve, however, telling people, men people, things they may not want to hear. And that quick fix bottle of nostalgia Xanax, always going to be a little more tempting than taking personal responsibility and doing the hard work of unlearning the harmful bullshit found between the covers of any book that claims to have worked out all the rules. All right, coming up in today's show on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, twice as long and no ads, subscribe at savagelovecast.com. Inca joins us to talk about porn by and for women. And on the micro edition, free with ads, half as long edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, all that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the at-risk tech-savvy youth. I'm calling from a rural state. I'm a cis female almost 30. I am out as pansexual to my husband, who I've been with for nine years. And most of my friends also know that I'm pan. My question is, should I be out to my family? Now, my husband and I are monogamous with no plans to change that. I don't really have a desire to change that. But I know that there's a lot of a need for bi and pan visibility in the world, um, especially for those people who are presumed to be straight. I'm very much about squashing preconceived notions of people, and I think there's a lot of stigma around being bi and pan that needs to go away. And as a pan person, I'd love to do my part, but is it too much to come out to my family as pansexual when Really, it doesn't mean anything as far as my relationship or future relationship. We like to say here in LGBTQLSTFLIQ again, IA land, that nothing undoes someone's LGBTQSLFTIQ again, IAA phobia, like knowing someone who's queer. And that there are people out there who know queer people, they just don't know they know them. 
And sometimes that's because the gay man they know at work isn't out at work or is closeted in every aspect of his life or the lesbian aunt that they've had forever who lives with her dear friend isn't out. Or they know people who are bi or pan who are in opposite sex relationships who aren't out and who read or are read as heterosexual despite the fact that they're bi or pan. That may be the largest group, the single largest group. Most people who are bi or pan, and some people use those terms interchangeably, some people don't, I'm sure we'll get calls, but most people who are bi or pan, according to a a Pew study, aren't out to quote the most significant people in their lives. It would help with bi and pan visibility. It would help with the LGBTQ civil rights movement if everyone who was bisexual or pansexual and in an opposite sex relationship would tell their families, even if it doesn't mean anything about being open, that you're not going to bring home a bonus girlfriend, just so that they know, just so that you don't disappear into presumed or perceived heterosexuality, just so the family that you have in your life who may not know any other queer people know that they know and are related to and love at least one queer person, you can't complain about buyer pan invisibility if you are an invisible buyer pan person. You can help change that, and you should. And it will change nothing about your relationship status now, but as the call from earlier in the show proves, life is long, partners pass away. Even if you guys go the distance, even if you guys are together for life, you may have a new partner at some point in the future. Better your parents and your friends and your family know that you're bi-pan now, So they know that they know and love a queer person and that affects how they vote now and what politicians and policies they support now. Also best that they know it now because who knows, you may find yourself single again later in life. I would rather be out now than have to come out 20 years from now or 30 years from now when I'm with someone new because my partner passed away and I'm in a same sex relationship 30 years from now. So yeah, be the out by pan person that your family knows and loves. Be a part of the by pan invisibility solution by making your pan ass visible. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old bisexual man living in New York City. I had a question about being open about bisexuality. So most of my friends, actually pretty much all of them, know that I'm bisexual, but One of my friends said the other day, not about me personally, but about another bisexual man that she knew that she wouldn't date him or have sex with him because he's bisexual. And I guess that made me think, you know, it seems to me a lot of gay men don't want to have sex with bisexual men and a lot of women don't want to have sex with bisexual men. So do I have some kind of obligation to come out to them as you know, to potential partners as bisexual, or is it a moral failing if I don't? Or is it just none of their business? It is indeed a moral failing. If you can be out and you choose not to be out, you are indeed then part of the problem. Not everyone is in a situation where they can be out. I don't think some people won't sleep with me if I'm out is a situation where you can't be out. You as a bi guy You don't want to be with long-term, short-term, two minutes, someone who 
doesn't love and accept you and know you. One of the perks of a long-term relationship is to be with someone who knows you inside and out, your flaws and everything that's awesome about you and that you just feel completely accepted and loved by despite the fact they know what the fucking farts smell like in the middle of the night and they know what you're irrational about or insecure about. They know what you're good at and they stay and they choose to be with you after they've gotten to know you for who you are. I can't imagine the stress of being with someone where you had to hide your sexual orientation from them all your life. That isn't an option that you should want to keep open. It's not that you don't get to sleep with those people, those women who don't date bi guys or those gay guys who don't date or fuck bi guys. It's that they don't get to sleep with you. Just like I tell kids who are coming out to their families, don't fear your family's rejection. Make them fear yours. Bisexual folks, don't fear the rejection of people who won't sleep with bi people. Make them fear yours. You're out to most of your friends. Congratulations. Awesome. Good job. This woman who said this ignorant, semi-bigoted, preference thing in front of you, that was your moment to come out to her. You should have come out to her. Arguably, friends being friends and the way friends talk and gossip about each other, she might already know that you're bisexual and have said that shitty thing in front of you and should have been called on it instantly. It's not too late to call her on it. Bring it up. Say, you know, you don't have to date anybody you don't want to date. Nobody has to sleep with anybody. No one is owed sex from anyone. CC in cell community. So she doesn't have to fuck you and she can have her reasons, but her reason isn't going to cost any bi guys, a decent girlfriend. It's going to cost her potential decent bisexual boyfriends. She would be a lousy girlfriend, lousy wife for a bi guy. So you wouldn't want to be with her anyway, at least not now. Maybe she'll have a rethink. Not that you're interested in her. I'm not assuming you're interested in her. But maybe if you come out to her, she'll have to examine her prejudices and preconceptions about who bi guys are. Because she said that to you thinking you weren't a bi guy. She probably wouldn't have said that if she'd known. This is your opportunity to speak the fuck up. Just like a gay guy who doesn't read gay and somebody says something homophobic in front of him can really shatter someone's perceptions of who gay men are by saying, uh, excuse me, I'm a faggot. You could really bring her around just by speaking your truth, a truth that you already have spoken to other friends. So tell it to her. Give her a call. Send her an email. Send her a text. You know that thing you said the other night? Just so you know, I am by myself. Not B-Y myself. B-I myself. And you know what? There may be a bi guy out there who is your perfect partner and you could wind up B-Y yourself because you weren't open to dating him. So something to think about, lady. Hi. So my question is, how do I regain trust with my significant other after what I'm about to tell you? So I am in a new relationship with a man who is significantly older than me. There's a 21-year age difference, and he uh, has a son my age who lives out of state. Well, this weekend, he wanted me to come by and meet his son who happened to be in town. And I typically spend the night when I come over. So I came over, met the son, had, you know, friendly, casual conversation with him. And then I went to bed and woke up sometime later with my significant other in bed with me. Uh, we were fooling around and started having sex. 
when suddenly I feel my ankle being grabbed and my toes are being sucked by someone other than my boyfriend. Turns out his son had come into the bedroom and was, yeah, assaulting me, violating me. I'm really not sure what was happening. Really not sure how to proceed. And then makes the comment, you sound so good, and walks out of the bedroom. Well, because of the way we were positioned, my significant other could not see what was happening. And so, of course, I told him. Uh, he was shocked and said he we should go confront his son. But I didn't want to. Uh, I was really rattled. And he said he would confront him without me, and I didn't want to be left. So it didn't happen until after I left several hours later. I just feel violated, uh, confused. I don't know if this is some kind of weird setup. Anyway, I'm not really sure how to proceed. I've not had any indication from this guy whatsoever that he would put me in the type of situation that would be unsafe. So I'm just confused. The fact that you suspect that this might have or even could have possibly been a setup, that sets the bar really high for this guy that you've been seeing. Sets the bar really high for continuing to see this guy. Unless he warned you in advance, and he didn't, you would have mentioned if he had, that his son had mental health issues or boundary issues or had some sort of problem that spilled over in him not being able to respect other people's boundaries. And if that was the case, why doesn't your boyfriend have a lock on the inside of his bedroom door? Then my gut tells me, my my suspicion tells me that this, well, tells me what your suspicions told you. Could have been a setup. Dad might have known that son was gonna do this. Maybe this is their extremely creepy M.O., The fact that the kid was able to sneak into the room and grab your ankle and suck your toes and say something without dad hearing anything, you had to inform him that his son was in the room sucking your toes and saying things in English out loud, full sentences that you at the top of the bed could hear, but somehow your boyfriend was incapable of hearing and that this went down and he didn't immediately charge into his son's room and explode in a rage. Yeah, there's all sorts of red flags. This is a May Day's parade worth of red flags here. And if I were you, I would tell the boyfriend that it's over and you are not interested in pursuing this relationship any further because you don't feel safe with him or safe in his house because of his son's actions and also because of his reaction to his son's actions. Didn't exactly leave you feeling safe, left you suspecting that you were set up, that he knew that this was going to happen. You should say all this to him. And then in this breakup conversation, you can weigh his reaction. If he makes a persuasive case, which be careful. And here's the caveat. A lot of sociopaths are very persuasive and charismatic and can make a case and convince somebody that the sky is green and the grass is blue. If you give them enough time on the phone or enough face-to-face time, they can have you doubting your sanity and your read of the events. So bear that in mind as you speak with him. But if he seems in your conversation just as appalled and his son is no longer welcome in his home, perhaps in a neutral place like fucking Switzerland, you can meet with him again. 
and see how you feel then about going forward. But the only thing he could possibly say that might persuade you, that might get him over that extremely high bar is that his son has mental health issues and impulse issues and boundary issues. And he meant to tell you, but wanted you to meet his son first without being prejudiced against him because of the mental health issues. And he was going to roll that out slowly. And now he realizes what an enormous and colossal mistake that was. And he's so sorry. And there's a lock on his bedroom door now. And oh my God, he's speaking with his son about it and speaking with his son's therapist and counselors and blah, 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 blah about it. And he's mortified. But if that's not what comes out of his mouth, don't fly to Switzerland to meet that guy. But that's just the alternate advice. That's not the advice that I want you to take. It just feels like the advice I ought to give you. So you have some options here. But the only option, really, the only option here is to end things. This is just too great a, a violation of your person. Indeed, a sexual assault that happened in your boyfriend's bed perpetrated by his son and in such a way that you can't know for sure that your boyfriend wasn't complicit. His actions after you informed him that there was somebody else in the room would seem to point toward complicity and duplicity, not cluelessity. So, pull the plug. Run. Screaming. Hey, Dan. I'm a 20-something straight white girl in college. Um, I live in Austin, Texas. So a couple months ago, I crashed one night at my old uh, guy friend from high school's house after a music festival that I went to. When I got there, it was late at night. Him and our other friends from high school were drinking and smoking weed and like we're just generally sort of getting fucked up. Um, I was really tired from the concert, so I wanted to go to sleep early, hung out with him for a sec. Um, and then my friend said that I could sleep on his bed because they were all still out in the living room and like he didn't want me to sleep on the couch because they were all out there. And I was like, oh, thanks so much. That's awesome. Thank you. I was totally down. Because I, I grew up with him. I, I, I went to high school with him, but I also grew up with him. I've known him since I was like seven. Felt totally safe, really comfortable. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. So I go to sleep in his bed. I wake up in the middle of the night to him like groping my boobs, kind of trying to take off my shirt, pinching my nipples. But I was like facing away from him, so I couldn't see if his eyes were open. Anyways, I stayed totally silent and still. I just laid there until he stopped because I was really freaked out and scared and like, it was just super creepy. And I obviously, like, I obviously wasn't awake. It wasn't like he thought that we were, like, starting to hook up. Also, he knew that I was dating someone at that point and that, like, I w we had never showed any interest in him. We, like, we had, I guess, had, like, little crushes on each other when we were younger, but it not, like, had not in years and years and years have we ever done anything like that. But anyways, so I woke up really early the next morning, drove home, called my friends, was like, what the fuck? And then I decided I was going to text him and be like, hey, last night what you did was fucking creepy and I can't believe you did that to me. You can't do that to people. I've known you for so long. Why would you do that? And he responded with what to me felt like was a really sincere apology and like explanation that I uh, that I think I believe and still believe. And he just said that he had been really fucked up and also kind of asleep slash dreaming, like he'd gone to sleep really fucked up, woken up in the middle of the night, kind of half asleep and done it without knowing that he was actually doing it. Like he was kind of dreaming. I mean, I don't know. I've, I've initiated sex like that with my boyfriends in the past where I wake up and I'm kind of like, Oh, I don't know what's happening. And then we start having sex in the morning. I'm like, did we have sex last night? So he could have been doing that, which is the thing that happens. So I accepted his apology. I still believe him, but I told my boyfriend all of this 
and he got really upset that and said that he thought that um, my my friend from high school was a hundred percent lying. There was no way any of that was true. It was all bullshit. Um, he wanted to just like feel me up and was and is now disguising it as this accident. Um, so my question is, what do you think? Do you think he was lying? Listening to your call, the first thing that came to mind was that Margaret Atwood quote. Men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them, which is often why women freeze in a situation like you described. This person came to your bed, sexually assaulted you, and you just froze and hoped it would stop. And indeed, it it, it did stop. And it was a kind of passive de-escalation strategy that a lot of women engage in and deploy in a situation like you describe and people who don't understand Men and women, the different ways they're socialized, the different ways in which women are terrorized and the fear of sexual violence that women live with day after day after day will look at your actions that you're in the moment and wonder why you didn't tell them to stop, jump out of bed, why you waited until the next day or a couple of days later to, from a safe distance, text him. And to those people, I say it might be because while men are afraid that women will laugh at them, women are afraid that men will kill them. That's not what you asked about. You asked what I think. And I think you could be right. I also think your boyfriend could be right. I think you are giving your old friend the benefit of some very, very grave doubts. It is a thing that happens. Sexomnia is a thing that happens. And you, looking to your own life, recall some moments, incidents, where you were drunk and fucked up and initiated sex in a kind of half-dream state. And you are willing to give this person with whom you've had this long relationship the benefit of the doubt and believe him when he says that that's what happened for him. And that is exceedingly generous of you. It is also possible that drunken fucked up and yet still responsible for his actions and fully cognizant of everything that he was doing, this person, your old friend, sexually assaulted you, took advantage of you. The only person who knows for sure exactly what was going on for your friend in that moment is your friend. And while I think it's possible that it went down the way he claimed, your friend claimed, and the way you're willing to accept that it went down and you're willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and forgive him, I think you have to err on the side of believing your boyfriend's read for your own protection. This is clearly someone that you can't be alone with. This is not somebody who you're safe with in the middle of the night in their apartment when they're fucked up or when they're not fucked up. If you want to continue to have a relationship with this person, if you want to sustain this friendship, that is your choice. You can give him the benefit of the doubt. You can forgive him and accept his explanation. Going forward, though, this is a thing that happened. This is a thing that he did. Whether he did it intentionally per your boyfriend or he was fucked up and sleepwalking in a half-dream state or a sexomniac, you aren't safe alone with this person and you shouldn't be alone with this person at any point in the future. And there has to be some accountability. If he did this to you, it's possible he did it to others in your social circle. I would, if I were you, speak to other friends. Silence is the great enabler of these sorts of violations, as we have seen throughout the Me Too and Time's Up era movement. And so you should check in. You should engage with the Whisper Network. Because if this is something that he's done with others, if there's a pattern here, then your boyfriend is absolutely right. 
and you'll need to cut this person from your life. If you check with other women that he knows, you check with other women in your social circle, and this is indeed an aberration. He has never done anything like this so far as anyone that you know knows. Perhaps he deserves that benefit of those very grave doubts. Hi, I'm a 26-year-old girl from the West Coast. So for about three years now, I have stopped eating pork products. And I feel kind of stupid even bringing this up, but it's just a moral choice. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I am not vegan or vegetarian. I simply just don't eat pork. Now, go back to three years ago when I kind of not announced it, but it just kind of came up in conversation with family. I got comments saying, am I a liberal now or am I a Muslim? And I almost like fell out of my chair. Like, how does not eating a certain product of meat make me a liberal or Muslim? It's not about religion. It's not about politics. It's simply just a moral code that I want to live by. I, I don't want to preach to anybody listening on this call, but, you know, I just have my reasons why I don't want to eat that specific animal. This gets brought up in almost every meal I have with my family, and they will purposely order pork products and try to shove it in my face and go, try this, try this food. And they'll also be like, but bacon is so good. <laughs> and I don't care what they put in their mouth. I have never preached to them what to eat or how they should live their life. And I really don't feel like they should do that to me. But it's getting on my last nerve. It's been about three years now, and I still get comments almost weekly from my family about it. In addition, I am married, and my husband was fine with it at the beginning. But lately, he's been really bugging me about making bacon for Sunday morning breakfast. And, you know, I told him, your money is your money. You can go buy bacon. You can make bacon, but I'm not going to be making it and don't make me eat it. I don't know, Dan. I just want to know what you think. It's kind of ridiculous and it's so irritating. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Usually I hear from people who are having sex with pigs or have a problem fantasizing about sex with pigs, not people who have a problem with eating pigs and a problem with Apparently, being married to an asshole related to nothing but assholes and working with assholes, it's fine that you don't eat pork. There are a lot of people out there who aren't Muslim. Now, there's anything wrong with being a Muslim who doesn't eat pork or Jewish uh, and don't eat pork or vegetarian and don't eat pork. There are people out there who eat everything else but pork because pigs are known to be very social animals, highly intelligent. They actually make great pets. There are studies that show that pigs can tell themselves apart from other pigs and pigs have pig friends. And blah, blah, blah. And so people won't eat pigs for those reasons because pigs are basically fat pink dogs. So what do you do? Well, you could marry someone else. You could refuse to discuss the issue with your family. You could flip off all of your coworkers or you could, I don't know, acquire some dog meat and ask them all to eat it or suggest that that's what you're going to do. You don't eat pork for the reason you don't eat pork and you shouldn't have to justify that or explain it to anyone. And the fact that all of these people, as so many meat eaters are, and I say this as a meat eater, reacting defensively to someone who's choosing not to eat one particular kind of meat, nothing worse than somebody who is a meat eater, as I am, who takes it personally or is offended or feels judged in some way by someone who is a vegetarian or a vegan who doesn't eat meat. And there are 
scoldy, horrible vegans out there. There was a vegan who went viral for blowing up at some woman online because she bought a kid an ice cream cone that wasn't vegan, so she's a fake vegan or complicit in cow slavery vegan. That was a fun moment on the internet, distracting us from the Trump atrocities. But on the flip side, there are some annoying meat eaters out there who feel like they're being attacked if everyone around them isn't shoving every different kind of animal product down their throats at the same time that they are. I don't know what to tell you to do, though. If everyone around you at work, at home, and in your bed at night is an asshole about this, they're probably an asshole about a whole bunch else as well. Sound like they might be anti-Muslim bigots on top of everything else. So make better friends, find better coworkers, hang out less with jerky family, and uh, tell your husband to knock it the fuck off or you're going to get yourself a brand new husband who isn't an asshole. And the next time you have a food-related question, I might suggest calling the Splendid Table instead of the Savage Lovecast. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old cisgendered woman who is originally from Latin America but currently living in Canada. Although an atheist, I come from a Catholic upbringing. This past year, I have discovered not only my queerness and my interest in kink, but I have also started my first polyamorous relationship. I'm someone who values authenticity and believes that my loved ones should know who I really am. However, I'm unsure how accepting they might be of a queer, kinky, polyamorous daughter. I have told my mom and siblings about my non-monogamous relationship, and they have been accepting about it. Additionally, I'm completely out on all fronts to one of my brothers, and he's pretty cool with it too. However, I'm still scared of disclosing anything to my dad based on some homophobic, misogynistic, and sex-negative comments he's made in the past. The reason why I'm calling is to get some advice on the following. When, what, and how much should I disclose to my family? What boundaries should I respect? Dan, I know my questions could potentially involve culture center advice, but do you have any advice? My mother liked to say that there were things a mother has a right not to know. And I like to say when it comes to polyamory or kink or whatever, that you can run your family on a need to know basis, that you're kinky, depending on what your kinks are, that might not be something that your family needs to know. Flip the script. Ask yourself if your parents were into bondage, if your parents were into piss play. Do you need to know that? Would you want them to disclose that to you just because they wanted to be authentic and, and feel like they're fully honest with everybody? They get the kids all around the table and say, sometimes I let your mother pee in my mouth, just thought you should know. You probably wouldn't want to know that. You probably would appreciate your parents running you on a need to know basis where piss play is concerned and leaving that part out. Right, You can leave out the whatever your kinks are if they don't need to know about it. It's not relevant. When it comes to the relationships that you're in, though, this is why if you're gay, you kind of have to be out because you're going to be in a long-term relationship with someone potentially. You're going to be dating people who are going to be important to you and you're going to need your family's love and support. You want to be known by your family. So they need to know who you're in relationship with. And I think that that means that if you're poly and there are two very important or three very important people in your life, if they are your family – your family, your family of origin, your biological family, they're going to need to know that. And some family might react that I shouldn't know this. Some family might say to you, we had a right not to know that, but they're wrong. They did need to know that. They need to know about your relationships, the people in your life who are important to you, people in your life who are your family, people in your life that you may need to turn to your family, your biological family, for advice about. That You need to be able to lean on your family if your relationships are going south, if you're worried about your safety, if you just need to vent, because in that venting, sometimes a sibling or a parent will step up and say, wait a minute, you're being, this is abusive. You have to 
get out of this relationship. And then the whole family can rally and help you at a moment that you needed to be helped, even if you couldn't see it yourself. And if you're in a place where you can't tell your family anything about your relationship because you're gay and closeted or you're in a poly relationship and so you're not even telling your family you're dating anyone, that kind of isolation is potentially dangerous. And sometimes we don't see the danger. Sometimes we need someone on the outside to alert us to the danger. And that's what family and friends are for. And if they have a problem when you tell them that you're poly, tell them that. That you need to be able to be honest with them about the people you're in a relationship with because you rely on them for their judgment and their advice and their insight. And you may have to at some point rely on them for their love and support in an emergency. And when do they want to find out that you have two partners? At a hospital during an emergency or now? The answer is going to be now. And yeah, I invite listeners in Latin America who may have more culturally uh, specific insights for you to call in and share their insights about how to approach this with your dad. But you're already out to some family members. And eventually when you're out to some, you're out to all. And so you might want to get in front of it and let dad know. Not everything. Dad doesn't need to know about your kinks, just like you don't need to know about his. But your relationships, your family, the family you're creating for yourself now as an adult. Your dad has a right to know about that. Your dad needs to know about that. And you need him to know about it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old Canadian woman. And my job relocated me to New York City about seven months ago, eight months ago. And I met a girlfriend here. And it's been really great. She's super awesome. I'm just having a really difficult time adjusting to living in New York and living in the States. Um, my mental health has been really off, super depressed, really anxious, feeling like I it's impossible to make friends here and to make connections here. And I don't want to put too much pressure on my relationship because I don't want to scare her away. But I guess I'm just having trouble with everything about living in the States as opposed to living in Canada my whole life. So I wanted to know, how can I go out and meet friends? I've gone to a couple meetups. I've downloaded friend apps. But it's really hard. Everyone seems like they have their friend group and they're not looking for anything else. So I just want to find my queer community here. And I feel like it's been impossible. And thus, I've been extremely depressed. So there are these newfangled ways that young people make friends. Meetups and friendship apps. When I think of how adults make friends, I think of work. When you're a little kid, when you're five years old, you can walk up to somebody on the playground in kindergarten, which is work for five-year-olds, and say, hey, do you want to be friends? And they will say, sure, let's be friends. And it's as easy and as simple as that. Adults are a little harder to befriend, a little warier. Usually what instigates or, or, or leads to an adult friendship is two people who are thrown together by a shared mission because they work in the same place or they work on the same team in a giant company or they volunteer for the same organization or cause and work throws them together and they can get a sense for each other's personalities, for each other's senses of humor, for each other's outside of the mission interests, the, not the shit you're volunteering about or not the work that you do together but the stuff that casually gets folded into conversation about the movies you saw or the play you went to or whatever else – interests you and a friendship grows out of that. So I would encourage you to put down the apps and put down the meetup schedule and find a couple of organizations in New York, queer or not, that are doing important work and a work that you admire. Maybe get involved with the Cynthia Nixon for governor campaign and throw yourself into that. Throw yourself into a cause that interests you. 
And you will meet other people with whom you have at least one thing in common, a shared interest in that cause. And in working together, through working together, you will determine whether you have other things in common. Whether there's somebody you like to have lunch with, whether there's somebody you might want to hang out with after work or after volunteer hours. That's how you do it, in my experience as an adult. Welcome to the United States. Not a time I would pick to move to this country if I had a choice between Justin Trudeau with his issues or Donald Trump with his fucking issues. I would stay in Canada myself if I had that option. But with the addition of each Canadian lesbian that we can convince to move to the United States, things get a little less sucky around here, particularly when those Canadian lesbians, to find friends, throw themselves into good causes and do a little good. Hi, Dan. I'm a polyamorous woman in my mid-30s from the Pacific Northwest. So I have a question about period sex. I've been seeing my boyfriend for about seven months now, and the other day we were about to have sex when I told him I was on my period. Um, Then he said he didn't feel comfortable having sex with me when I was on my period, which was a little confusing because we've actually had sex a couple of times on my period in previous months. So we talked a little bit more, and he said that he just has a really strong aversion to blood, And he had tried to push past that with me, but he just never felt completely comfortable. So I've never really had a partner refuse to have sex with me when I was bleeding before. And I just felt really hurt and rejected at the time, like I was being punished for having a natural bodily function that I have no control over. So here's my question to you, Dan. Do you think that period sex is one of those things that should like come standard in a relationship like oral sex? Um, also, is it really common for guys to not want to have sex with girls in their period? Or is that something you think guys should just sort of push past to please their partners? Oh, and lastly, um, does anybody else out there have any experience using menstrual discs like Flex or Soft Cup for supposedly mess-free period sex? So what left to mind while I was listening to this call is I don't want to have anal sex with Terry when he's got the runs, even though that's a natural function, sometimes afflicts us all. But I thought I might run that past you because I'm sure that's not the analogy or the comparison that women would welcome. That's not the analogy that springs to my mind. <laughs> what is the analogy that springs to your mind? Oh, I don't have an analogy. I I just I, I think you're bringing me on here because you think that I'm going to say that he should just like deal with it and fuck her while she has her period. But I don't think that. I think he's got a right to be grossed out by. That's what I, also what I was going to say. I was thinking in my head like. Blood for some people is just really – there are people who faint at the sight of blood. Yeah. And women, of course, because from puberty onward, have this intimate relationship with blood and it's richly symbolic of uh, of womanhood for many women. And, of course, you don't have to have a period to be a woman and there are people out there who are women who don't have periods and don't have uteruses. <laughs> Poor but, Dan. Listen to you. I know. But for many women, it is deeply meaningful. And to feel that it repulses a partner, your sex partner, uh, I-, I can see why that would be hurtful. But projecting yourself into the man's experience, a, a, a dude who doesn't have sort of an intimate uh, experience with blood on a monthly basis, who doesn't associate it with their sexual expression or gender in a profound way, yeah, I could see a lot of guys arriving at period sex being a little freaked or squicked. Yeah, you, you can't blame them for that. I mean, I personally, I don't have a problem with it. I kind of love it. I sort of feel like, yeah, I'm bleeding. Ooh, Warm, bloody, out. and tender, the, the Rachel Lark song that I love. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, for some men that like ha- can't deal with that, that's fine. She came up with her own solution at the end. This one's easy. Those cups are great. I've been using them for years. And uh, they work. your partner, yeah, they totally work. Your partner may never even know. So just you know, cap it up, get 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 going. So our our ruling, the the not triumvirate. There's only two of us. The duo emirate. 
is that it doesn't necessarily have to come standard. That that guys who are squicked out by period sex, that's a thing a guy is allowed to be squicked out by. And there's nothing sexist about it necessarily. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I don't think there's anything sexist about it. I think it's worth a man like really trying to think it through. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're grossed out by it, then that's that's okay. It's fine. And there are workarounds. Outer course. Yeah. Those discs or cups. Yeah. Uh, oral sex in place of. Uh, no. I mean, not like. <laughs> that like doesn't some, work, Dan. Well, if you have a tampon in and. No. No? Mm-mm. And you're just focusing on the clit? Oh, no, that would be weird. That would be uncomfortable. I think. Maybe some ladies enjoy a tampon session. And the, the dude can floss while he's down there. You can <laughs> kill two birds with one stone. Just like run and brush your teeth afterwards and you're ready for bed. I'm feeling yucky right now. <laughs> well, thank you for jumping on the mic for a second to speak from the period having perspective. Okay, bye. Thank you. That was Nancy Hartunian, Savage Lovecast producer from episode number one and uh, period haver. And I dragged her in. Leader. Leader. Breeder bleeder, even. On May 5th, Amanda Hess wrote a piece for the New York Times with the headline, Who Gets to Be Sexy? Technology has made it possible for just about anyone to shoot, direct, and star in their own porn films. Women are leading the new guard. Joining us to talk about women and porn and porn made by women and for women, Inca from Four Play Films, erotica made by women for women. Hey, Inca, how you doing? Good. Thank you for calling. Uh, my pleasure. So what got you into pornography? Well, it's actually a really personal story. Um, a few years ago, I lost my libido and I was searching for solutions with my partner. And we were looking at porn and it was just nothing that turned me on at all. Because most mainstream porn is made for men and the male pleasure is the focus and women are more used as props. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I was just like, why is nobody making porn that's aimed at women? And since I work in the film industry as a costume designer, I just started joking to my friends, oh, we should do that. And every, everybody was like laughing. Yeah, sure. But nobody was like taking it serious. And one day I just, I saw this video that was a fashion video, but it was like super central and sexy. And I was like, oh, this is what I would, I want my porn to look like. And so um, I got together with some of my friends who also work in the industry. And I was like, do you guys want to shoot this with me? Shoot a teaser? And my friend was like, sure. And she was a cinematographer and director. And I expected her to direct a film. But by the, by the time we were shooting, she just wasn't available. And I'm like, well, who's going to direct it? And she's like, you are. And I was like, okay. And that's how I started making porn. So, so one of the sort of truisms about porn out there, and maybe it's a catch-22, maybe it's a chicken and an egg problem, is that most porn is made for men and for the male gaze because most porn consumers are men. But are most porn consumers men because most porn is made for men and it's just this reinforcing sort of endless cycle of catering to the male gaze and attracting the male gaze? Is making porn for women going to prompt more women to become porn consumers, which will then itself become a self-perpetuating force that results in the creation of more and different kinds of porn, including porn that centers women's bodies, women's pleasure? Um, Well, I think that, you know, from my personal experience and just talking to women, it seems that everybody is looking for porn that is sort of not degrading and visually pleasing and 
women want to watch porn. It's just that the porn out there isn't necessarily what they're into. But at the same um, time, I read studies that say actually that I'm not sure what the numbers are, but up to like 30 or 40 percent of porn watchers these days are actually women. So I think that it's both true at the same time. There's actually a lot of women that are already watching porn, but more women would watch porn if there was more out there that would speak to them. And a lot of the women out there watching porn, I hear from them, they complain that they have to pick through a lot of garbage to find what isn't degrading uh, in a degrading way. Some people like degradation play, but they like it to be clear that it's that someone isn't truly being degraded, that this is consensual sort of bracketed uh, role play and not a video of someone being psychologically or physically abused or harmed. But, you know, women who do watch porn say they have to sift through a lot of icky shit to find the stuff that works for them. The point of more women making porn and it becoming more prominent and there being easier routes for women to find it is that maybe there'll be more women porn consumers and better porn out there for women uh, if it's easier to surface it. Yeah, and that's exactly what my problem was when I was looking for porn myself. I just couldn't find any. And I was like putting searches in like female friendly porn, porn made for women. And I just... Nothing was out there. So I definitely think that if there's more out there that is accessible and also obviously people have to know about this. So um, it'll be easier for women to actually get what they're looking for. And I think like, I mean, one of the things that we focus on too is to emphasize consent and to even like the video that we have that, you know, is about punishment, it's very clear that the woman is initiating this. So, you know, I've been writing about sex for a very long time. And one of the questions that I've gotten frequently at Savage Love over the years is how do I find feminist porn? And I've directed people to, you know, writers like Violet Blue, who does a really good job of sorting through what's out there. And uh, writers and porn directors like uh, Tristan Tarmino, who does a really good job of sorting through what's out there. There are the Feminist Porn Awards that have been in existence since 2006, which is, you know, exists to highlight good porn made by and for women that is solidly feminist and not shitty, awful, degrading male gaze garbage. Um, it seems to me that we're always like on the cusp of a revolution of women in porn that never quite comes. I mean, I, I guess from where I'm sitting, I feel like it's happening. I think it's just also maybe the job of the media to point this out and lead people to where porn can be found. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously there's Erica Lust already that makes something that's, you know, similar to what I'm doing. And I mean, our website is foreplayfilms.com foreplay without the e so you can find porn there and cindy gallop and make love not porn yes maybe maybe it's just that so much of the good porn made by and for women is just perpetually buried in so much of the garbage porn made by and for men that despite you know the feminist porn awards and writers like Violet blue and tristan tarmino and you know erica lust's efforts and cindy gallop's efforts and your efforts it just always seems like it's getting getting obscured by most of the porn that's out there that is still mostly bad. Yeah, and it, it is, I think, at this point also, it, there really isn't that much. I mean, even though there is some good porn made for women by women out there in, like, proportion or, like, a percentage, it's just not a very high percentage. 
So finding it is also going to be more difficult. So what will my listeners find if they go to foreplay, F-O-R-P-L-A-Y dot com films? What kind of stuff are they going to find there? So we do like three things. We, first of all, do a subscription-based website. Um, the subscription is free. So if you go to the video tabs, you will find erotic short films that are, you know, made by women for women. We focus on cinematography and lighting and locations and just the visual and um, just visual aspects and the music. We try to set an emotional tone and we have storylines, but they're not, you know, there's not really like dialogue or anything that's distracting from what you actually want to see. And um, at this point, we all, we shoot couples. So, the people that you see are actually dating and in love. Some of them are actually married. So it's just like visually and emotionally just very different. It's more like a sex scene in a movie where the aspects of sex are sensual, the orgasms are real. When somebody is coming, we try to get their faces because it's beautiful. And it just, you know, no sort of like no surgical lighting on the genitalia that <laughs> you don't necessarily need to see. Yeah, yeah, I've never quite understood <laughs> that in straight or gay porn. Like a little, obs- <laughs> there are things that exist in shadow, and that's part of what makes them a little more alluring. And shining a clay light up there in the shadows, I think, yeah. isn't always the best artistic choice, personally. And our our choice is to not necessarily show everything, even though everything is visible, but you also want to be the observer from a standpoint that if you were seeing a couple have sex, this is what you would see. It's not like you would go in there and be like, excuse me, um, I need to look there. This is what I need to see. So, you know, <laughs> excuse me, the colonoscope uh, section of evening <laughs> yeah, has, exactly. has arrived and I'd like exactly. to see your exactly. kidneys. Yeah, so so we do we do that. Then the other thing that we do, um, we actually have a YouTube channel that's called Sex Education. So we do sex education for grown-ups, which is basically a humorous way of talking about sex. Or we have like a dominatrix that explains how to do cunnilingus, or a fake fictional Freud character is talking about uh, the importance of foreplay. Like our newest video up there is called Communication, and, and it was just in the Newport Beach Film Festival. And we do quote you at the end of the video, so you should see if <laughs> we quote you accurately. <laughs> well, I will check it out. Inca from Four Play Films, erotica made by women for women. Check them out at four, no E, just F-O-R, playfilms.com. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today, Inca. It was great talking with you. Thank you so much, Dan. Hey, Dan. My question is about what's appropriate when it comes to dating a couple. I met this guy on Tinder who had a girlfriend. We went out for a drink. We all got along really great. They talked to me about their experiences, and they seemed like people that knew what they were doing and I'd be interested in getting involved in. So I went over their house, and the first time we hooked up, the girlfriend was very standoffish and sort of made me feel uncomfortable. So I stopped everything and I was like, I'm not doing anything unless the girlfriend's comfortable. And eventually she came around and it was all right, but I still felt like it was kind of tense, but they wanted to see me again. So the next week I went over there 
And apparently they had gotten in a big fight about something that had nothing to do with me, but they didn't tell me about it. So when I showed up at their house, the vibe was very tense and I didn't really know why. So he invited me into the bedroom and we got undressed. We started messing around. And then she came in the room and opened a drawer, looked for something, left the room, slammed the door. And I said, this doesn't seem okay. And he was like, no, no, no. She's just mad at me about something that happened yesterday. Don't worry about it. Then she proceeded to come back in the room three or four more times, turning on the light, slamming things around, slamming the door, at which point I was like, I'm out of here. This is totally not okay. It's not comfortable. I felt traumatized, dehumanized, totally not comfortable with the situation. So I left. And then he kept texting me and calling me and saying like, oh, also before I left, he goes, well, she left the house. So it's fine now. And I said, you know, it's not fine now. And just because she left the house doesn't make it fine. And I was really upset about it. And they did not seem to understand why. So I explained to them how that made me feel and how it was not okay. I told him, you know, he should not have invited me over if his girlfriend was upset with him that wasn't fair to her and it wasn't fair to me to put me in that situation. And he's like, I really didn't look at it that way. And I'm sorry. And I was like, yeah, I don't think I want to see you again. So then a week later, his girlfriend sends me this apology. That's just ridiculously stupid and not a real apology at all. And I just thanked her and let it go. Cause I don't really need the drama. And now he is trying to get me to hook up with him again and saying that we can hook up without her around because I'm not interested in being around her ever again. And I'm tempted, but I kind of think like it's not the right thing to do. Don't see this guy again. Don't see him without his girlfriend and don't see him when their relationship ends. You're probably going to get a call from him when you tell him to fuck off. Because he has a girlfriend and you're not going to sneak around with him behind his girlfriend's back, you'll probably get a call after that relationship ends, after she dumps him or he dumps her. Clearly, they're headed for the exits, both of them, saying, hey, I'm free and clear now. We can totally fuck. I wouldn't fuck him then. because He's already demonstrated to you that he's obtuse and selfish and sexually not somebody that you can trust, doesn't prioritize his girlfriend's comfort or safety. You sound like you're mad at her, but it's unclear whether she wanted to be in that room. You say you had a conversation with her initially and with him initially the first time you met for drinks where they talked about their experiences and everything seemed fine and they seemed game. So I don't think she's out open under duress. Doesn't sound like she's a pud, poly under duress. Sounds like she's up for three ways. And maybe she's just one of those people who thinks drama and conflict is hot. There are those people out there who like to have breakup sex with people they just met. You should avoid those people. But he hasn't acquitted himself well either. If she was down and then played these kinds of games in the moment to make you feel uncomfortable or attract attention to herself, negative attention to herself, because that's hot for her. Yeah, I wouldn't want to see her again either. But he sneaking around behind his girlfriend's back, suggesting that you guys have a two-way now instead of a three-way now. Yeah, no. Don't fall for the sunk cost fallacy. Don't continue to invest in this because you've invested so much already because you almost got into his pants twice. Cut him loose. There are other guys out there and other partnered people out there who can have a three-way, who can meet a unicorn and make her feel special, not make her feel like she needs to run from the room screaming. 
Hi, Dan. I'm a 60-year-old straight guy from a small East Coast town. I've been divorced six years, and then I did the online dating thing for the last year. So I've been dating my current girlfriend for about four months, and almost everything has been great. We have good sex. We communicate extremely well. She's crazy about me. But I wonder if I'm being superficial when I find myself unable to fully commit because of two of her physical attributes. First, she's overweight, but she is working on it. And second, she's had a double mastectomy without reconstruction. I'm trying to figure out if I should just suck it up and be grateful that she's in my life, whether I should say something about the possibility of considering an invasive and serious um, medical procedure for a cosmetic purpose. I often encourage her to exercise, and I think we both understand that to be my concern about her weight, but I have not said anything about the fact that she has no breasts. I wonder if a heterosexual guy like me is simply hardwired to be turned off by this or whether I should be able to get over it. Do you have any advice about whether, how, and when to bring this subject up with her? You ask if you should be able to get over it. The fact that your girlfriend of four months, who you're already mow-mowing about her weight, didn't get reconstructive surgery and doesn't have breasts, doesn't have replacement breasts for the ones that were removed because cancer. And you mentioned earlier in the call before you ask if you should be able to get over it that you have a good sex life, a great sex life with this woman, despite her weight, despite the fact that she chose not to get reconstructive surgery after her double mastectomy. So you can get over it. Every time you're with her, every time you're intimate, you have proven to yourself that you're capable of loving her in the body that she's in now and having a great and awesome sex life with this woman as is. Four months is too fucking soon. Four months is too soon to be mow-mowing someone about their weight. I think it's great when partners inspire each other to eat better and to move more and to get out of the house and be active. But mow-mowing, bitching at somebody, dragging someone over the coals or just dragging them constantly because of their weight, not okay, not cool. And you do identify this conflict that you're experiencing as rooted in selfishness. And that's good that you're able to correctly identify the selfishness at root of this. And, and I don't want to drag you for liking boobs. Boobs are very important to straight guys. Straight guys like boobs. Straight guys are indeed hardwired to like boobs. You can also like a person so much that the parts of them that have been lost to disease, the, the parts of them that are scarred, the parts of them that have been carved off, and life has a way of carving shit off all of us when you get to be in your 40s, 50s, 60s, sometimes even earlier, to love someone and have your genuine affection for them and your attraction to them that can carry you over a, a disconnect and help you bridge something. That's really one of the ways that love proves to us that how powerful it is. That a guy who likes boobs, who is attracted to women can be with a woman who doesn't have breasts because life is a way of carving chunks off of us the older we get. The question you shouldn't ask this woman if you want to address this subject isn't, hey, would you please go get breasts stapled to your sternum for me because my dick? The question you ask her is this. You chose after your double mastectomy not to get reconstructive surgery. What informed that decision? And then just shut your fucking mouth and stop thinking about your dick and listen to what she has to say. I bet she was aware of reconstructive surgery. Most women who get a mastectomy or a double mastectomy are aware of reconstructive surgery being a choice for them. 
Many women experience that not as a choice at all, but it's something that they must do to feel like women or be perceived as women. She obviously didn't feel that way. She didn't make the obvious and what for many women who have had a mastectomy or double mastectomy is the default choice of getting reconstructive surgery. Stop listening to your dick for five fucking minutes and listen to her. I bet she has very good reasons why she didn't make this choice. I bet it is very traumatic and very difficult for her to talk about the reasons she didn't make this choice. So when you have this conversation with her, it has to be or seem to be motivated by concern and genuine interest in her, not concern and genuine interest in your own fucking dick. And who knows, maybe what you're going to find out is that she always wanted reconstructive surgery and couldn't afford it. Maybe that's where you come in if you guys stay together over the long term. Or maybe there's a reason why she didn't want to do it. Maybe there's a medical reason why she couldn't do it. And if you love her and want to be with her, you may have to love and be with her as is, just as she loves and is with you as is. No 60-year-old man is in mint condition either. Hey, Dan. Um, I'm a 32-year-old lesbian. I know it's a normal kinks to have. I'm into, like, rape kink fantasy from men, even though I'm a lesbian. Like, I just read stories, and um, I'm, like, a big feminist and do local work for politicians. I don't know. I feel guilty about it. I know we've talked about guilt and kink before, um, but I, I don't like that I have it, and I kind of want to get rid of it. I mean, I probably read stories once a month or something, and they're... I'm just fictional and nothing I I don't think I need to feel super guilty about in terms of real people being harmed. But I also kind of want to get rid of it. How do I get rid of a kink that I really don't want to have? If guilt could eradicate an unwanted kink, then nobody would have a kink. Most people struggle with feelings of guilt and shame about their kinks. And if guilt dissolved kink, there would probably be no kinks. If guilt dissolved non-normative sexual orientations if guilt dissolved gay or lesbian or bi or trans there probably wouldn't be any gay or lesbian or bi or trans people either because they would have melted down into a puddle of guilt so feeling bad about this isn't going to change anything we don't pick our kinks they are selected for us through a process that sex researchers don't really understand kind of at random where choice comes in and culpability comes in and accountability comes in and how you choose to express those kinks and you choose to express your kink in a controlled way that harms no one. You read these stories. You don't watch questionably produced porn featuring people who may not be there of their own free will. Your kink exists in imagination. Your kink exists on the page. And again, no one is harmed. And it seems to me that you have found a way to channel this particular aspect of your sexuality in a healthy, consensual way, and you have nothing to feel guilty about. So you're going to have to let this go. It doesn't conflict with your feminist bona fides. Any more than the gay guy who likes to be called faggot when he's getting fucked isn't really an out and proud gay guy. Any more than the feminist woman who likes to have her hair pulled and her ass slapped and be called slut during sex by someone she has given permission to treat her in that way and she is in control of the how and the when and the duration of that treatment isn't a feminist. There's just so many examples out there of people who are aroused by something that transgresses against societal norms, expectations, taboos, but also their own self-conception, their own identity. And I think that that 
the kink, here's my kink, it violates my self-conception, my self-identity. I don't think that that is a bug. I think that that is a feature. There's something about the construction of our public personas, the face we move through life presenting, that requires such effort to sustain that construction. It doesn't mean it's not authentic. It's authentically constructed. But there are times we just want to throw ourselves in the opposite direction. And often those times are eroticized time. And I think that's part of what the erotic imagination is for. It allows us to play. It allows us to play at opposites. Part of your erotic imagination, despite the fact that you're a lesbian, wants to play at the opposite of heterosexuality in this form. And your feminism and your belief in the, the equality and dignity of women, part of you wants to play with that erotically in a controlled and consensual way that shouldn't be generating any guilt. And sometimes I think throwing yourself into the opposite helps you feel more authentically present when you return from it. And for it to be tied to sex is opposed to tied to anything else, dinner or politics or voting, it contains it in this way because it's about erotics and eroticism and orgasm. And then once you have your little orgasm, you can walk the fuck away from it and it doesn't have to bleed over and infect your politics or your public presentation, the persona that you've constructed. So let yourself have this. You're going to have it anyway. Because kinks can't be eradicated. You can't reach into someone's head and yank the kink out. Lots of people have tried. It doesn't work. Any more than reaching into someone's head and attempting to yank the sexual orientation out works. It just doesn't fucking work. So the question you have to ask yourself when you have a kink that's politically problematic or ethically or morally impossible is how do I live with this and live with myself? How do I have this in a way that is healthy, that is consensual, that is safe, and that is contained in the instance of a politically problematic kink. Not like a rubber swim cap fetish, but race play or domination submission or uh, rape play, quote unquote. A lot of people call that ravishment, not rape, because in a rape fantasy scenario, someone is being taken against their will by someone they wish to be taken by, not quite the same thing. So some people call that ravishment instead of rape fantasy. Anyway, give yourself a break. You're doing everything right. You're not 24-7 existing on forums and consuming these stories. This is something you go to once in a while and you go to literature, not video, to satisfy. You're a good person and you're doing it right. Stop feeling guilty. Hey, Dan. I'm a gay man in his early 30s living on the West Coast. I came out kind of late when I was 23, and I lost my virginity to an older man when I was 23, and uh, it was great. It was a great experience. Uh, but before then and, and after that for a while, I've been experiencing kind of this weird feeling and feeling of guilt. I certainly feel much more comfortable, very comfortable with who I am now and my sexuality, and I talk about it and I'm very comfortable about it, but I surprise myself sometimes with how even in my early 30s now, almost like a decade after I started to kind of like experiment and experience my homosexuality, how every once in a while, like I'll still feel like a, a tinge of guilt. And I, I don't know if it's from, you know, the four plus years of Catholic education or maybe like a, a really kind of almost traumatic as a child that kind of has tainted this aspect of my sexuality, but 
I, I was just kind of curious to know if there are other gay men out there who, even as adults and who feel very comfortable with themselves, still feel like a sense of like, am I, is this right? Or like, am I possibly like deluding myself? And, and it's, I feel ridiculous even saying it because like, I know in my heart that this is not true, that this is who I am and I'm happy with who I am. But like, it's almost like if I watch like dirty, like porn or, and I get off the second I get off, it's like done. Or if I hook up, is it that it's not a romantic thing? And maybe that's what I feel dirty about. Or is it possibly like still just like a discomfort that I have with uh, being homosexual and kind of like a guilt about that? Four years of Catholic education. You got off easy. I had 12 years of Catholic education. And it's not unheard of for people who are as sex-shamed and stigmatized and have been for millennia to have some residual feelings of, of guilt that they have to reason with and argue with and bat down every once in a while. Whatever messages you got during those four years of Catholic education and whatever scar you emerged from that traumatic experience that you cite and didn't unpack for us, whatever scar you emerged from that experience with, that's not the end of the messages that gay men get. It's not like you're in four years of Catholic school and that's the one opportunity religion and the culture have to bombard you with messages about who you are that tell you that the person that you are is wrong and sick and sinful and bad. Those messages come at us all the time, sometimes in subtle ways. Anti-gay bigotry is all over the internet. It's all over the television. You can be bopping around late at night, stoned out of your mind. I'm speaking from personal experience here and land on Pat Robertson. It's a terrifying thing to contemplate as a gay man who wants to land on Pat Robertson. Nobody. And you can hear those things again. Now, most of us, I hope most out gay men who have processed this shit find those messages almost ridiculous. You kind of develop this force field around you that they bounce off of. But sometimes they get through. Sometimes they penetrate. And at those times, it is helpful to remind yourself what sex is for. Because what they're telling us is that we misuse sex, that we do sex for the wrong reasons, that our desires are perverse and sinful because why? Because they're not potentially procreative. Same people who say anything is possible with God say two men can't make a baby. I say miracles happen. But it helps at that moment, if that message gets through your force field, to remind yourself what sex is actually for. People have a lot of sex and very few babies. Why is ovulation hidden in the human female? Why don't we go into heat like elk or cats? It's because sex does other things for us and other things in our culture than just crank out children. And the other stuff sex does is almost, I think, not almost, actually is more important. Makes us feel good, creates bonds of intimacy, creates community, creates couples, lasting couple bonds, sometimes lasting thruple bonds, sometimes lasting quadruple bonds. The love hormone, oxytocin, all that release, all of that stuff is more important than the making of babies. Making of babies is incidental. Think of all the orgasms that we can potentially have. Think of all the children that we can potentially have. Unless you're a Mughal emperor, unless you're Genghis Khan, if you're just the average couple, maybe you can crank out Duggar style 24. What are they on now? 25. Who knows? The average couple, 2.5, 2.3 or less, less than two. Sometimes it's one. And yet that couple continues to have sex for why all these other reasons, all these other things that are legitimate and important. 
Even the Christers, even the Christian shitbags who are constantly bagging on gay men for doing sex wrong. You can read their sex and relationship and marriage advice books where they emphasize the importance of intimacy and sex in a long-term relationship because it does all these other things. Well, it does all those things for you with the dudes that you're with and that you're attracted to. You don't have to feel bad. Final bit of advice, remember the refractory period after you blow that load, after you come. Prolactin, this hormone, is released into your body. It makes your dick shrink. It also restores your disgust, your sense of disgust. Think about it. You're turned on. You've got your tongue up somebody's asshole when you're turned on. After you come, that doesn't sound like such an inviting prospect. Doesn't sound like a place you necessarily want to put your tongue. Not at that moment. Certainly not at that moment. Right after you come. And sometimes that feeling when the prolactin is, is released into the male's body and he's suddenly crazy disinterested in sex, maybe a little turned off by sex, gay people will associate those refractory period hardwired feelings of Ugh, sex, ick, with gay. I'm feeling this because I just came because gay sex is wrong and icky. Blah. Straight guys are feeling that same goddamn thing, but they can't attach it to straight phobia. They can't attach it to cultural messaging about how awful and sick and sinful and perverse straight sex is because those cultural messages are not sent. So you can, as a gay person, snip that link between those feelings you get in the refractory period where maybe you just want to cuddle or maybe you want to get away from the other person. Maybe you want to close the laptop, stop looking at porn. Maybe you want to go have some ice cream. Don't associate those feelings of wanting to pull far away from sex as, ah, gay sex is awful. Now I remember, now I'm not horny. Now I remember how awful and terrible and sick and sinful and perverse gay sex is. No. Now you're not horny because the prolactin is pumping through your body just as it pumps through the bodies of all men after they ejaculate. Don't be so hard on yourself. Hi, Dan. This isn't a question, but it's a comment on show 603 where the man whose girlfriend is terrible at giving head, it didn't seem to suggest that he had considered the possibility that perhaps she just hates giving head and is intentionally terrible at it to see if he will stop asking her to do it. I appreciate that you are constantly reminding your listeners that our society socializes women to be deferential to men and to be very careful how lightly they tread on their egos. And so it's not an uncommon thing for women, including myself, because I hate giving head, to pretend to be terrible at something sexual that they don't really want to do because they think that if they are honest with their partner, that their partner will either not take it well, could possibly be violent, probably not in this particular situation, or there could be some other really negative consequence that they are trying to avoid passive aggressively. So maybe he should ask if she doesn't want to do it and give her the ability to opt out. Perhaps she'll change her mind, but he should ask her that first before jumping to any other conclusions that she should perhaps get a class on her technique because that's not going to help. Hey, this is for the caller with the super really high sex drive. If his dopamine problem is ADHD, like I have, uh, medication can help him a lot because I know he said he had a dopamine problem. So basically, I was self-medicating with sex and masturbation and even just looking at pornography. It got those sex hormones in my brain, and I just felt better, more focused, especially after sex or masturbation. 
it would relax my brain. My thoughts would be more clear and my mind wasn't racing anymore. So if this is your problem, if it's ADHD, definitely get medication. It will raise your dopamine levels to something where you can concentrate better and not be as sex crazy if it's possible. Hi, this message is for the caller on episode 603 who is struggling with his preference for Asian men. I'm not an Asian, bisexual, or gay man myself, but I am a biracial woman and I completely sympathize. I've had a natural attraction to white men for my entire dating life, and even though I've gone out with men of every color, the attractions that stick are always in that first category. I've been called every name in the book, Oreo, whitewasher, abandoner of my culture, and I've even been accused of trying to whitewash my future children. None of this is true, but I just wanted to show solidarity and support to you. Dan's advice was right on point. As long as we examine our desires and don't dehumanize anyone, we all deserve to love who we love. I also don't think you should force yourself to have sex with people of other races just to prove a point, because that will dehumanize those people in the reverse fashion. Anyway, I just wanted to say you're not alone. Hang in there, and best of luck. Two quick bits of business before we get to, and we're going to leave it there. First of all, Joan Price is the person who said that it is better to be alone because you're alone than alone because you're with the wrong person. I credited that comment, which I love, to uh, Dossie Easton on a recent Savage Lovecast. It was Joan Price who made that insightful observation. Thank you, Joan. And I'm sorry for the misattribution. Also, if you are on the East Coast or in New York City and you are looking for couples therapy, an award-winning documentary film company is seeking couples to be featured in a multi-part documentary about couples therapy. If you're interested in learning more, apply to CouplesTherapyDocumentary.com. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow 4PlayFilms on Twitter at 4FORPlayFilms. And follow Joan Price on Twitter at Joan Price. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week for an installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.